0: makers
1: all right so this is our podcast and we are here with the wonderful mary Mackey, whose uh bio i could probably sit and tell you about um for the whole 45 minutes <laughs> uh, so um, just to, to make it a little more brief, I will say that her her most recent collection of poetry is, is out here. I have it in hand, Travelers with No Ticket Home. Um, and uh, this is, uh, is this your, I don't even know how, this is your fourth or fifth um, volume of poetry? Oh. Um, This is my seventh book of poetry. Seventh. Uh, The previous one was the winner of the 2012 Penn Oakland Josephine Miles Award for Literary Excellence. Um, But lest you think that that Mary is only these seven volumes of award-winning poetry, she is also um, the author of 13 novels, um, including, I believe, two comic novels written under the name Kate Clemens. And um, is that right? So, sorry. Yes, that's right.
2: Yeah, that's my pen name. So so I'm I'm just the Samuel Clemens, so I took
1: that as a last name. Yes, this is wonderful. <laughs> uh, and, and Mark Twain is your, your your grandmother's cousin or your father's grandmother's cousin, right? He's my grandmother's cousin, yes. <laughs> uh, and then, lest you think that is all, uh, Mary Mackey is also a screenwriter. She's sold feature length scripts to Warner Brothers as well as independent film companies. Um, her uh, film Silence was was. Uh, made in 1974 with starring Will Gear and Ellen Gear, who actually tie into my family history. I'm not related to them, but my, my mother um, grew up a little bit with Ellie Gere um, in the 50s in Topanga Canyon, yeah. <laughs> so, um, and um, Garrison Keillor's featured her poetry four times on the Writer's Almanac. Uh, she has a BA from Harvard, a PhD in comp literature from the University of Michigan. She's, she taught at um, Sacramento State for and founded the graduate writing program there. Um, And um, that's just a little tidbit of the marvelous Mary Mackey. We'll get more into it in our conversation. Welcome. Thank you. Hi. Hi. So the first thing we do is we just do a check in about what we're all working on this week in our creative pursuits. Um, So Mary, do you want to just let us know about your current week? Yeah,
2: I'm working on a prequel to a best-selling series I have about the goddess-worshipping cultures of old Europe, and uh, the novel is called The Village of Bones. It's a prequel to The Year the Horses Came, which is the first novel in the trilogy, and it should be out sometime probably this fall. So I'm in the midst of writing another novel. This would be my 14th novel that I'm
1: so what are you, like what are, you, what are you actually doing this week? Are you drafting new material? Are you reading it? I just I spent today walking around with my iPhone, developing
2: a character and dictating into the phone, which I do a lot. And then I also uh, am doing the uh, final revisions on the third draft of the novel. So I'll have a polish
1: in a couple of weeks, probably a polished draft. Oh, great. Um, all right, well, I'm excited to talk more about everything. Um, Angie, what are you working on this week?
0: Well, this week is all about getting the um, screenplay ready to go out, a couple of deadlines that are actually today, and of course, yeah. did my great last-minute stuff, so um, still still having some work on that, getting out for those outline uh, deadlines
1: good so you're you're reading and making changes and things and,
0: yes and then of course radically rethinking things and you know like you do <laughs>
1: yeah it's good good um well I uh sent off my uh, a very rough draft of my proposal to my agent with the first hundred pages of my memoir and um <clears throat> and now I'm you know rethinking everything <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah regrets always <laughs> yeah, there's, it's, it's so, it was like thrilling to just send it off. And, and the, and the day of the days leading up to that were thrilling. And then suddenly it went and it was a bit of a crash. So, um, I'm kind of regrouping, you know, what, what am I going to work on it, work on something else, try to figure that out. Alrighty. Well, um, Mary, I just, I wanted to actually just follow up with, um, so when you're walking around with your iPhone and you're, working on a character, um, what do you do with that material? Are you then going to transcribe that or is it just helping you think through it and you're going to go in and, and make changes? What do you, what's sort of, what are the steps there? What I do
2: is I find that I, I think really well when I walk, I, I have ideas really well when I walk. It sort of clears my mind. So I, I dictate it into notes using Siri. Uh, which is sometimes a very funny experience because she has no idea what I'm talking about. And then I email it to myself. I bring it down and I use it as rough notes for uh, character development. I I'm, I'm actually have a character I need to add to. He's already very well established, but I need some more childhood background on him. So I was dealing with his his background today.
1: Kind of inventing, inventing it.
2: Yeah, inventing it. Yes, inventing his family and and you know his what he likes to do, what he can do well, what he can't do, his traumas, his you know, I I look at all the things. I sometimes I use them, sometimes I don't, but I need to know the character's really well.
1: Yeah. You know. yeah. One of the things I really wanted to ask you about is um, Angie and I both are people who have a lot of different projects and enthusiasm and directions and um and you seem to be somebody who's accomplished in in many different areas how do you um focus your energy move, how do you how and when do you move from project to project Is a daily weekly monthly yearly i mean how do you kind of how are you so productive in so many different directions <laughs> well mostly i do one thing at a time so mostly
2: if I'm writing a novel, I'm not writing very many poems. Um, if I'm writing poetry, I'm not writing a novel. Um, if I, I, can, I can write screenplays. Um, they're a very different form. They're more like a blueprint. So I can actually write those while I'm writing novels and poems. But I find that novels and poems interfere with each other. They come from different parts of my mind for the most part. And so I have to very focus on them. And I'm very intensely focused on whatever I'm, I'm doing at the moment.
1: Mm. How much do you bring in your screenplay, kind of that form, the the blueprint of the screenplay into um, form in your other work? That's a great question. Actually, it's sort of the
2: other way around. I wrote novels long before I wrote screenplays, and I, I'm just a visual person. And I used to tell people, well, I'm running this novel in my mind like a movie, which is how I see my plot and everything. I'm, I see it very, very visually, almost like a movie. Um, I don't write novels to have them turned into movies, but I think my ability to visualize and then to convey the visual images in words is something that's really important for a screenplay writer. And I taught screenplay writing many times when I was a professor before I retired from Cal State Sacramento. And I found that I often had two kinds of students, very verbally uh, illiterate students who could write beautifully and very visual artist students who could not put things into words. And what you need is somebody who combines both it's cause, because you have to do both.
1: Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, and and could you were you able to, to uh, generate the the missing part in any of the students? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, that's what I
2: worked on. I worked on helping the verbal people visual, you know, see the visual images and make them understand that a movie is a series of images. It's not like a poem. It's going to have to be visual in front of them. And then I helped working with the visual people, helping them figure out how to describe so someone else can understand what they're doing because a movie is a committee effort. It's a kind of blueprint. Yeah. So yes, that's one of the major things. I. And then every once in a while I had somebody like Ryan Coogler who, who did uh, Fruitvale Station was one of my students and he just had it all the second he
1: walked in my office. Mm, that's wonderful. Um, have you ever novelized a film or, or, or written a screenplay of, of one of your
2: novels? Yes, I have. I adapted uh, my first novel, McCarthy's List for Warner Brothers. And I also had a hilarious but nicely paying job once to adapt Moby Dick into a science fiction film. Nice. Now I got to say, it was a challenge, you know, you know, disabled sea captain pursues vanishing species, you know, it was really, a, it was really hard to figure out how to put it in outer space,
0: but it was fun. It never got made, but I had a lot of fun doing it. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and do you have I feel like, I feel like that's going to be my next project it, um- <laughs>
2: Right. Right I think you should try Remembrance of Things Past into a movie. That's probably the most impossible one ever. Yeah.
1: Not not to mention into a sci-fi movie. (laughs) Not really. (laughs) Do you want to
0: ask any questions about the screenwriting? Not necessarily. I think that um, what I'm, you know, interested in is sort of hearing more about your process. I mean, there's you, it's interesting to look at ideas and see, okay, how do I know if this idea, this image, this piece, because we all, all start with so such fragments. And mm-hmm. so, you know, do you have a gut feeling that this fragment is a poem, a gut feeling this fragment is a novel, a gut feeling that, or, or do you have, you know, an analysis you go through when you look at your ideas um, that help you determine what would be the right approach?
2: Right. Let's okay. Well, they come. Novels and poems come out of two different parts of my imagination. Poems come as visual images usually. Mm-hmm. I have an image or a few words that are rhythms in my head, and the poem kind of crystallizes around it like a crystal in a super-saturated solution. Novels are stories that I start telling myself, and I continue to tell myself over a period of several weeks or months. And I tell myself stories all the time. Uh, I'm the kind of the queen of what's the worst thing that could go wrong here, you know? And, and, uh, and I don't really get anxious about it, but I think about it as, as plot. And they're much more rational and linear, and you have to put the pieces together more. And, you know, it takes two years to write a, a novel at least, and it takes only, for again, a good draft of a poem takes, well, one about three hours to write the poem, and then you have to go back and revise it over a period of time many times. Right. But the process is so different. Mm. And I just know, you know, I, I don't, I'm never confuse whether something is a story or a poem. Now, sometimes I've had stories, novels come out of poems. I wrote a novel about the Civil War dead in, I mean, excuse me, a poem about the Civil War dead in Virginia called Lynchburg when I was at the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts. And later, I used the idea for my novel, um, The uh, Notorious Mrs. Winston, which is about the Civil War. So sometimes those poem ideas are little novels in acorn form and the novel becomes the
1: tree.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: that's great. Now, do you think it's do you think it's lessened your anxiety to to channel your your worst fears, imaginings into into story and and creativity? I'm remarkably not anxious for somebody who reads apocalyptic
2: fiction and imagines the worst thing can happen. I don't really worry about them. I mean. Obviously, when really, really bad things happen, I worry like everybody else. If a tornado is heading toward me, I go to the basement. But I don't have general floating anxiety about things. I sort of see them as literary opportunities, you know. What's the worst thing that could happen right now? I could fall in a deep well. Hmm, that would be interesting for a character. So it's really not coming from at least an experienced anxiety. It's more coming from the fact that when things go wrong, they get more interesting.
0: (laughs) Hmm. So I would actually maybe ask a question in in the um, different forms. Um, I had a playwriting teacher who once talked uh, about how much of a character you can actually reveal in a play. And Mm -hmm. her idea was basically that in a play, you really couldn't, you were going to make complex characters, but you weren't going to really necessarily do like a deep dive with her characters in the same way that, you know, you were mentioning earlier, she used this phrase um, character cuts. And what they mm-hmm. were um, was basically sort of creating depth by contradictory but limited character aspects. So um, that does lead me to ask you the question, do you find developing character for screenplay or for novel different or do you use the same process? No,
2: it's,
0: no, very, it's very
2: different, um, very different. Um, sometimes film has been called the idiot art form. I mean, for the most part, it surfaces. Very mm-hmm. few films work if you have a narrator that says, and then I picked up the coffee cup and thought of her. You know, those, right. so you have to show it. And I think, you know, it's been said, and it's not my idea, but I, I follow this principle that in film, character is demonstrated by what you do in, under difficult circumstances when you're given a choice. Mm-hmm. And that's the real way you find out what character is with people. And, you know, what they say and what they do at that moment. In a novel, you have the luxury of going into their inner thought processes. And you can do a different kind of, of depth there. You can have a novel where nothing really spectacular happens that can be a really amazing novel. And yet you really can't have a very, um, rarely can you have an interesting movie.
0: That's.
1: Mm. But so, so, so nothing spectacular happens but... You're put under, but the character's put under pressure, is that what you're saying? The character's put under pressure, or perhaps the
2: character is remembering something that happened in the past, or perhaps you're learning about an interesting character. There was a novel that came out, I can't remember when, it might have been 15 years ago, I think it was called Escalator, and the whole novel takes place between the time a guy gets on an escalator at a mall and when he gets off. (laughs) And you get, his, you get his thoughts and feelings. Or you get something like Finnegan's Wake, Joyce's Finnegan's Wake. By the way, some fools, not fools, some people actually tried to make a movie of that. It's a novel that's one sentence. It's 600 pages long, as I recall. And uh, it takes place in one second between waking and sleeping. And you can do that in a novel. But it, the attempt to transfer that into a film was not successful, in my opinion.
0: <laughs> um, I want to we actually, we actually have a question if you're oh, great um, you, you spoke to this a little bit earlier because you uh, it's a time management question is uh, so it's literally I have a time management question you're the poster child for prolific how do you juggle all of your projects and you spoke to that a little bit one thing at a time but is there anything that you can say to deepen that response and maybe
1: I'll add in that you were also teaching for, for years many classes so how do you know how do you balance all the other obligations of the external world with uh, obligations
2: to your creative. Well, short of telling you that I'm a group of clones, I'll actually be more more honest here. Uh, I, I'm highly focused and I focus very intensely on what I'm doing at the time, very intensely and I compartmentalize. So if I'm doing social media, I spend a day doing social media. If I am writing, I spend a day writing. If I'm teaching, I give my all to my teaching. And I have always put in very long days. When I was teaching, I would often teach, um, you know, from 9 in the morning till 10 at night. Uh, And that gave me time to have office hours and talk to my students and do everything I needed to do there. Then the next day... Frequently as a college professor, I would not have a teaching day in my schedule because I'd put in a very long day, and then I would spend that whole day writing. Um, I go to bed early, <laughs> you know, I mean, I try, I try to get rest. And then I also pretty much have a rule that I don't try to write for more than five hours a day, and I spend the rest of the day seeing friends and exercising and living a life because I don't want my life to just be writing.
0: Mm-hmm. Very nice. Um, another question we have is, unless you want to go any deeper on that, Elizabeth?
1: Let's
0: take the questions. Okay, so the other question was, can you give an example of uh, that kind of novel that you think is great, Remembrance of Things Past?
2: I have a real passion for the classic novels, probably because I got a doctorate in comparative literature on the 19th, in the 19th century novel, um, French, English, Spanish, with a minor in Russian. So I read uh, actually, there was a time in my graduate school when I was reading five novels a week in different languages, which was overwhelming, I have to say. I was exhausted, utterly exhausted. But So I like the classics. I, I also like – I have a very wide range. I love Proust. I've read Remembrance of Things past several times. I love Joyce. I'm a, very fond of Conrad. I like the novels of Dickens, which I've read repeatedly. But I also read science fiction novels. For example, I was just reading Station Eleven, which I think is extremely well written science fiction novel. And I'm very interested in the fact that science fiction novels are one of the few novels where we philosophically explore ethical questions without having people get so politically polarized that they can't read them. So mm-hmm. I you know, I so I have a wide range. So I, I like really good writing. Um, and I like people that push out of the box and go somewhere different. Uh, not necessarily experimentally in prose, although that's fine, but um, people that widen my perspectives and, and give me new ideas. Um, and you know, that's, those are the kind of novels I really
1: like. Do you read while you're writing? And do you, do you, do you create a relationship between what you're reading and what you're writing? I try not to. Um,
2: it's okay with novels. I, can, I think I, one reason um, I, I don't read poetry when I'm writing poetry. Because it creeps in there, and all of a sudden there are the T.S. Eliot's lilacs all over my novels. You know, I mean, all over my poems. Um, With novels, I tend to read non—I mean, excuse me. When I'm writing novels, I tend to read nonfiction. Uh, And I tend to read um, novels not in the genre I'm writing in. Once again, I don't want to be influenced. But I'm perfectly happy to steal anything uh, in terms of form. And yes, I know we're going to come to that. In terms of form and craft, there's just no reason to reinvent craft. And when I see a novelist doing something that's brilliant in terms of craft, I'm uh, willing to adapt it to my own work. And um, I think that's how I taught myself to write, really, was by reading. Mm. And, and,
1: and do, can you talk a little more about that process of, of stealing? Yeah. When I
2: was learning to write novels, I started taking novels apart the way I imagine people take away take apart car engines to figure out how they work. And so I've been trained in criticism. Um, and I so I knew how to analyze. So, for example, before I wrote my first novel, which was a comic novel called McCarthy's List, I took apart Ford Maddox, Ford's The Good Soldier, which is a very serious novel. But what I did was I looked for structure, transition, I looked how characters were introduced, I looked how um, I looked at how uh, description was integrated, I looked how the climax was, toward how you built toward the climax, I looked toward how the secret was kept in the novel, and I marked it all up with a red pen and just put it into pieces, and I said, you know, I marked every transition, ah, this is how you do a transition, transition here, transition there, and I basically let the other writers be my teachers.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what I do in my teaching is, you know, we look at a little piece and then we write directly. We look at what's happening. We write directly. Do you, would you recommend getting a PhD for a budding writer? <laughs> Well, no, but I do recommend getting a day job that will
2: allow you to write. Uh, I read a lot of, when I, I, I was very motivated very early, and when I was 14, 15, 16, I got into writing, reading biographies of great writers. And many of them had made a fair amount of money or been very successful at one point in their life and died in desperate poverty, or they'd never made enough money to live. And I'm one of these people who likes to eat, you know, very, I like I to have a, a day job. And I thought, well, I want a job that will give me time to write, um, that you know um, will allow me to have a decent life. And uh, at my, I'm older, so there weren't many venues open to women at that time. So I could have um, been pretty much a secretary, a nurse, or a teacher. And I thought I can't teach high school, I'm too short. People will not obey me, <laughs> you know. So I thought I've gotta to go to college. And I liked I liked I've always liked studying and reading. So I, I got a PhD very specifically so I could with a luck get a job at a university and then be able to write. So it's very premeditated. And so I think you need a day job. I mean, you could do tile setting, that would be fine. Or, you know, actually, better yet, roofing because it's seasonal. And then when it's off season, you can write. But I do think that writers who have a day job are not forced to write for money, and I've never had to write for money. I've made money writing, but I've never had to do it. And frankly, I can't write for money. I once tried to, when I was not, you know, had almost no money, I tried to write a poem for Cat Magazine, and I could not write a poem about a cat to save my soul. I would have gotten $20 maybe if I'd written a poem. But, I, you know, as soon as
0: I have to write for money, I freeze up. Well, one thing that I also notice in in your kind of outline of <clears throat> finding that job and whatever, mm-hmm. you still have the drive, and there's a there's a certain um, I think kind of focus management besides project level, which is you are writing, and you have an unambiguous it sounds like commitment to writing, mm-hmm. and so I think sometimes people struggle because that commitment is not as clearly resolved for them. Um, Have you ever struggled with insecurity around your writing? I've struggled with insecurity about whether or not I'm a good writer,
2: or whether or not the thing I'm working on is the right thing to work in, work on. But I've never struggled with anxiety about whether or not I wanted to be a writer. I was telling stories to kids before I could read and getting paid in candy, which actually does prove I can write for money. Um, I f- always felt like that if, I, if if it was we were in a primitive. I write about the um, six thousand years ago about the Neolithic, and I always felt if I lived in that society, I would have been the person who told stories stories to the kids, sat around the campfire and told stories, maybe even wandered from uh, settlement to settlement telling stories. I think I was just born telling stories, you know. Uh, and I, I love writing. And because I enjoy it so much, I don't feel like it's a job. I actually feel amazed that I've gotten
0: paid for it. So you focus less on product and more on process, it sounds like. Like you like to write. I love to write, but I also focus on process
2: because I want people to enjoy what I write, or and I want what I write to be as to be really good. Um, mm. And certainly, I wouldn't mind. You know, I don't mind fame, but um, but the really most important thing is the process of crafting something beautiful, um, mm. or at least something completely coherent. I like the aesthetics of writing. I like making something out of nothing. A great deal.
1: Mm. You, now, you've been a teacher, uh, have, and you've studied a great deal. Um, are there teachers that were particularly inspiring to you, whether you're real-life teachers or just people you, you learn from? Yes, I owe a great debt to
2: many, to many inspiring teachers. Um, I had a wonderful ancient history teacher in grade school who was just fabulous and extremely strict. She'd wear, make you wear gum on your forehead if you chewed gum in class, but she was really, really good. Uh, I had... Uh, a great teacher in, named Mr. Duffy in high school who was an English teacher, and he would write things on the board and say, now, you shouldn't read this book because it's too old for you, and of course, we'd all go out and get it, so it was his way around, you know, the problems. He said, I'm making a list of books I don't want you to read. He was just very funny that way, and he would imitate parts of the, of the books, um, and then I, bizarrely enough, when I was at Harvard, my biggest influence was uh, a ethnobotanist named Richard Evans Schultes, who was the father of ethno- botany, and he spent years in the jungle. He brought uh, ayahuasca back to uh, Western attention. He was the world's greatest expert on hallucinogens, and I worked in uh, his Lab is his, go- is his, his office as a gopher, cat- categorizing plants and things, and that gave me a real urge to travel to the tropics, travel to the jungles, um, see that beauty of a world that's so little explored, and I've done that a great bit. I've, I've lived in the tropics for many years off and on, and I've been going to Brazil for the last 25 years, so that was very inspiring, and I find a lot of inspiration,
1: particularly for poetry, from those experiences. Mary, did you read a recent article of a few months ago in the New Yorker about um, hallucinogens? And um, I, go ahead. Well, yeah, just, just and it was, I mean, one of the things that talked about was they're doing new, they're, they're now studying hallucinogens again, you know, after decades of, of it yeah. being illegal to do so. Did, did you see that?
2: Um, I think I did. I, I've always you know read a lot about them. I have to say I don't use them. Um, I was you know I, seriously, I was very, you know, I was very cautioned about them. I, I actually do a form of meditation. I think that under you know, if you're going to use them, you need to have them in the social context of the culture that's worked out ways of helping people use them. Um, in positive ways. I think it's pretty dangerous to, uh, you know, kind of even worse than riding a motorcycle without a helmet to just swallow strange plants. And you don't really want to call poison control and say, I just ate a piece of a vine from the upper Amazon. What can you do for me? So I, uh, but I do think that, that they have many, many drugs of all sorts have come from the tropics. And I think they probably have very legitimate uses. And I think they should be studied, certainly.
1: I mean, I'm less interested in the you know actual drug experiences themselves, but one of the things that was interesting to me was this idea that the the um, the kind of control mechanism of your brain that kind of controls the communications between the different parts of your brain sort of lifts off and lets and the and then the different parts of your brain can kind of communicate more directly with each other and and so I don't think that only has to happen through through drug use obviously, and I think it's part of the creative process to kind of and I mean, we talked about this a little bit, but line. But um, that you know, this whole idea of kind of um, that comes a little bit for me from the Robert Olin Butler book on craft that um, that Janet Burroway just put together for him. Um, but with the idea that you that you kind of in writing you tap into the kind of dream logic. You have to kind of get below the the kind of base functionality of language, and so I, that was what I was curious about. I actually have developed a personal technique. I
2: don't teach it, but I have developed a technique of going into deep trance and getting to that state, which is... um both on, which is just liminal, it's on the border between the conscious and the unconscious. And in that state, I can access the creative, non-rational, almost pre-verbal part of my mind, and then I am conscious enough to be able to write it down, and I can put myself into deep trances and do this. Um, and I think that that is exactly what I what I do when I work that way, and it's a, a very kind of quiet, the only danger is that you'll go to sleep, I mean, it's a very quiet process. But and, and I've been doing that for years. I actually see myself, particularly as a poet, in the mystical tradition of poetry. Um, And I should add that one thing that has really interested me in that is is that all my life, starting when I was six months old, I have had extremely high fevers. Whenever I run a fever, I have run near or you know near one hundred and seven many times. Okay, that's probably my brain probably burned out somewhere there. (laughs) But as so, I had this sense whenever that happens of. You have a sense of moving into a euphoric, different world where you see things that are different. And it's the kind of things mystics report. So when I started reading mystical poetry, I realized that we had a commonality of process here, of seeing things. And I think that has been a major influence on the way I see the world.
1: You know, Annie Dillard asks in the writing life, you know, how, how do we bring ourselves to this edge from which to write? It sounds like you've come up with the technique. You know, she says, you know, if we we were going to fast for, you know, a week and then, and then do it, or or we're going to have, you know, warriors pounding on their shields and, you know, before we sacrifice a virgin or something, then you could write, but how do you just do it on an ordinary morning? Do, Do you always do this kind of trance or do you have other ways in? I used to always do it. I did it for about 10
2: years when I was, you know, starting, and then I became able to do it almost immediately without having to go through the trance process. So I became, because I had trained myself, I was able to immediately access the non-rational parts of my brain with enough rationality to be able to record them. Uh, If you don't have the rationality, you can't record them because um, it's like a dream when you wake up and forget it. Um, On the other hand, I have to say that this is raw material, it's not crafted material. I'm a very big believer in rational crafting after you get the raw material. So uh, yeah, I mean, virgins are scarce and hard to find and you know, it's... hard enough to make a cup of coffee in the morning without locating a virgin to sacrifice. And I also think that, you know, a lot of writers do this with alcohol and you destroy your health that way and then you end up not being able to write. Um, And so I wanted to preserve my health at the same time I wanted to still be able to have intense irrational contact with the subconscious.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about. Oh, Wait, I would like to also say we've got uh, three questions that have sort of come in, and right, um, I'll hold my question. You go ahead. <laughs> okay. Um. So this kind of loops back around, which was when you were discussing the one thing at a time. One of our our um, class people wanted to know. When you say uh, one thing at a time, are you talking one project at a time? Do you finish the novel before you work on a poem? Do you finish the poem before you work on a novel, etc.?
2: Yes, pretty much. Uh, I very occasionally will write poems while I'm writing a novel, but in general, when I'm writing a novel, I'm focusing only on the novel. When I'm writing a series of poems, I focus only on the poems. With my new book, this is the, you know, Travelers with No Ticket Home, the one you were showing earlier. I wrote these poems in an apartment in Brazil in 2012 in the four months we lived in Rio de Janeiro. And I wrote every day, I wrote a poem every day. Some of them were no good. Some of them were. And I was completely focused on poetry for those four months. And the result was a collection of poetry.
0: Okay, excellent. Thank you. Um, There was also some interest in finding out Who are your uh, favorite sci-fi authors and or novels? You know, I have a horrible trouble when asked this, remembering the
2: names of authors. But I have to say that um, A Sparrow by Maria Doria, oh, I can't remember her last name, is a wonderful novel. Um, I like, um, I've got all sorts. I like uh, Finney's uh, Time After Time and Time and Time Again. He also wrote, by the way, the screenplay for Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Oh, interesting. Um, I'm particularly interested, I'm not very interested in space operas. Um, I'm interested in sociological, um, you know, looks at things. Uh, I'm particularly interested in time travel because I think, contemplating the nature of time is also contemplating the nature of eternity. And it has a lot to do, time travel has a lot to do with our desire to resurrect the dead and look at the past. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested in novels that deal with that. Um, Mm -hmm. and I'm sorry, I'm blanking on all the titles of all the novels. I've got a whole shelf of them in my room, but, um, mainly, uh, these are all novels that are, are very well written and that are, um, uh, have a little, more, have more to offer. I'm, you know, you, I'm so bored with battles in outer space. I can't tell you. I mean, I wouldn't, okay. but when you look at a movie, like say Inception, which is very interesting about planting different dreams in the subconscious. And I find
0: movies like that fascinating. Excellent. All right. And then you, you did speak to this, um, but maybe go a little deeper on the kind of aspect of your, your, work. So do you meditate or do yoga? Do you intersperse it with your writing? Do you use it to inspire your writing? And you have spoken to that somewhat, but going a Actually,
2: there's a difference between the trance work and meditation, which okay. I should make clear. I do do meditation. I've meditated every morning of my life since 1975, missing maybe two weeks. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I meditate every morning uh, for about an hour. Uh, ha- but that's meditation, and that's very different. Um, the trance state meditation is about uh, moving into a slightly altered state of consciousness, a very deep relaxation, and that's not for me. forgetting getting ideas, the trance state is I'm working. I'm going there to work, and it's a it's a separate sort of thing. I'm I'm going down the way. So I do both, but they are not the same at all. Um, and um, you know, I've I just do a very I do TM. It's a very a simple meditation. Uh, I've never been very involved with the organization, but I just find it works very well for me for relieving stress and making me relax. Okay. Okay.
1: Um, I have a, a final question, and we also would love to hear a poem. Um, but but you you mentioned the kind of rational crafting that comes after the trance state, after the raw material, almost the dream. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of your concrete? crafting approaches, what, what, what is important for you when you're, you know, on the sentence level or the scene level or the or story level about, um, you know, when you go back to, to edit yourself. Okay. Yeah, I do. A, a, and you know,
2: actually I have to say that reading student papers and helping them was a great help to me in figuring out how to uh, explain my own process and edit my own work. Um, with the poems, I look at the poem and I start ruthlessly cutting um, things down to the core metaphor, the core images. And then I encourage those images, so if I had a poem with say an image of a, oh, oh I don't know, um, um, a carpet, uh, you know, wood in it, I might use carpentry metaphors to, uh, then increase the metaphor in some way in the poem. So it'll be a whole, but I usually, sometimes my poems are two pages long and they end up four lines, you know? Mm -hmm. So I'm very ruthless about cutting everything out of a poem that's not really good, that I don't really like, that's not really working. And if I cut the whole poem, I realize it's not going to work at all. So I, you know, um, I do that with both. I've sometimes had poems where I save one line from the poem and it becomes another poem. So ruthless, ruthless cutting and clarity. And then I read it out loud for rhythm. I read all my work out loud, which helps me edit. With the novels, it's a much more complex process. There are hundreds and thousands of decisions to make, but primarily I'm looking for clarity in the novels. I'm looking for the chapter breaks being in the right spot. I'm looking for the world being visible in the inner eye to the reader with not too much detail because I can go on and on and on about everything from wallpaper to the wood in the door. But I want, I want to have enough absolutely correct images to bring that novel to life as if indeed it were a movie. Uh, although it's not written cinematically. So I do a lot on description. And then I want to make sure the characters don't sound like each other, that they have depth and they're interesting characters and they, uh, their actions are, are well motivated. I'm very concerned. I ask myself, almost like an actor, what's the subconscious motivation and the conscious motivation for this character to do something?
1: That's such a big one. That's such a hard one. People get set on uh, this happening and then it doesn't make sense that the character do it and that they then there's, a re- there's resistance to, to changing it. Right.
2: Once you've created a character, you can't make them do certain things. So if you want them to do certain things, you have to go back and revise and revise your character. Yeah. You know?
1: and, and how about with screenplays, revision of screenplays?
2: Uh, I, I write. I have a screenplay writing partner uh, named Renee De Palma. We work together. I've been working together recently on a number of screenplays. She's actually filming one of my screenplays. Uh, she's directing and producing. And She's a producer-director also in uh, L.A. this summer. Uh, and uh, we bounce off each other there in revision. But once again, motivation is key. And also extraneous things have to be taken out. You need pace is very important. And you need to make sure that it's moving correctly. I mean, we're doing, we're doing screenplays that – we're not doing avant-garde, Maya Darren sort of, you know, uh, collage screenplays. We're actually doing screenplays that have um, some, you know, n- commercial potential in terms of, of being able to attract large audiences. So we want to make sure that we're not lagging and that we actually have things happening in a reasonable order. And I'm, I'm, I'm the I'm, – uh, Renee's good too, but I'm really good on motivation, figuring out what motivates people. Mm, great. And I've to say, you know, that everything I've ever read proves useful sooner or later. You know, you find some strange little fun fact that you read 20 years ago and all of a sudden you discover that the person in your screenplay needs it. Like, oh, I don't know, like, uh, in the Middle Ages, they had desserts made out of sugar that looked like castles. You know, you read that in medieval history many years ago, and suddenly you have a screenplay, and you think, hey, let's put a sugar castle on the table. And you're able to bring in this kind of um, wide-ranging humanist look at things. Mm.
1: Great. Would you read us a poem before we before we wrap up with our Steal This uh, discussion? Okay. Uh, I'm going to read you a poem
2: um, about, about living in the jungle, and it's called, In Those Days Rivers Could Not Cool Me. I once lived in places where volcanoes erupted, the water was poison, and the night swarmed with termites that tasted like glue. There were rooms where I lay so wrapped in fever that the fans overhead seemed ecstatic in their whirling, rooms where I saw light the color of blood and bruised plums had hallucinations, dreams, terrors so great they set me shrieking. One night, for four hours straight, I spoke in rhymed couplets and no one could make me shut up until I threw off the sheets and ran into the tropical night like a woman on fire. In those days, rivers could not cool me, threats could not subdue me. I burned and burned with illness, lust, and fear, and your lightest touch seemed like a blow. Later, I cooked a monkey in cream sauce, and we ate it as jungle rats ran the rafters over our heads. The next afternoon, I nearly stepped on a nine-foot lance Only a mad woman could have loved such a life. But I did, I do, love the strangeness of it, the non-humanness of it, the sure knowledge that death was so small and close it could buzz in
1: my ear. Gorgeous. Thank you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Well, I will say, so we have have our final... um, I don't know what to call it. Actually, I, I need to, I should come up with this. But anyway, our final, Angie, any ideas? You know what I'm trying to say?
0: I actually don't know what you're uh, saying. Our final,
1: our final bit of business is <laughs> that we have this, this um, amateur writers borrow, professional writers steal. Look at what we've come across this week that we wanted to steal or incorporate into our own work. And I will just start with the confession that um, you know one of the things I do is I get up early and I and this is sort of spurred by by spurred by this Robert Owen Butler um, book that I read only poetry before I, I write and I don't I try not to expose myself to kind of functional linear useful language. Um, that is you know that is doing some kind of um, daily function and, and, and I very often read your poetry, Mary, and um and what I and what I'm looking to steal is this kind of incredible closeness to to the world that is so vivid and so beautiful and um but it reminds me of the power of words to create worlds on, on the page, which I'm not, I'm not writing poetry, but when I go to write, it gives me a kind of courage to do that, that I, that I don't necessarily have, um, without it. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. Uh, and, and, and Mary, you, you came up with something you, uh, what, what would you like to steal that you came across recently? Yeah. I always
2: want to steal from what I'm reading at the moment. And as I said, I'm reading Station Eleven, which is a post-apocalyptic novel about a group of Shakespeare players traveling around northern Michigan. And I just love the evocation in that of the lyrical beauty of the world, even in the middle of disaster, the absolute beauty of nature that surpasses human consciousness even. And even the idea that should we somehow as a species become extinct, this great beauty would still exist. And I love that lyrical beauty. And I, I would love to convey that into my descriptions of nature in The Village of Bones, which is the novel I'm just writing.
0: Mm. Fabulous. Thank you. And Angie, how about you? Um. Well, on my walks this, this week, I've been actually listening to a book uh, about Einstein, and one of the things that he did and um, sort of believed was that you would take these complex ideas and and if they weren't something you could communicate in a simple picture, then they were probably wrong. And so this week I'm really thinking about simple pictures and how um, I can take my overly complicated thinking and simplify it for the communication to others. Great, I love that.
1: Um, Mary, uh, why don't you, can you tell people how they can get in touch with you and anything that they should look out for? Yes.
2: Um, I'd like them to know that I've put up an educator's page on my website at MaryMackey.com, which has free resources for teachers of writing and students of writing, and it's my give back um, to the world after all these years, and it has syllabi for um, all sorts of writing courses and courses in women's visionary fiction, women's visionary poetry, and women's visionary film as well as advanced composition. And this is part of my many writers have a day job and many of them teach composition. So I just want them to know that they can go to marymackie.com. That's also how they can get in touch with me. Um, they can also, um, I'd love people to uh, join me, join my newsletter mailing list because I'm giving sneak peeks at my novels and updates and um, will be happy after they read my newsletter to answer questions if they want to answer questions. And then final thing is they should know that I just interviewed Marge Piercy in an interview series I have on my website, once again at marymackey.com, and uh, she talks about writing short stories and poetry much in the way we've been talking today. So actually, I'd just say that, you know, my website has many, many resources and people are welcome to come and I'm, well, I'm happy to speak to them there.
1: It really does. And that was a wonderful interview and there is so much there. So um, yes, Mary Mackey, M-A-C-K-E-Y.com is a great place to go and, and um, you can also look for Travelers With No Ticket Home, really beautiful new collection of poetry. Thank you so much, Mary, for, for joining us today. Thank you. My pleasure.